We're in Ellsbury Crown Court, a boxy red brick building in a quiet town in Buckinghamshire. It's a rainy morning in March 2017, and the room is relatively full by Ellsbury standards, full of people in suits and official garb. And the reason for that is that today marks the end point of quite a lengthy investigation, and the judge is reading his verdict. It's disgraceful conduct. This is a shocking state of affairs. You demonstrate a scant regard for the law and a history of non-compliance. We have all the major players of any good crime drama here. The judge, his honor Francis Sheridan, up in the parapet with his wig on. The chief prosecutor, Anne Brosnan. And then, of course, you have the defendant. Well done for a painstaking and thorough investigation. I hope the courts never see the likes of such a case again. It's wicked. It's a hushed atmosphere. For Judge Sheridan to use such strong words in a sentencing, you know it's going to be a tough one. But the perpetrator isn't sitting slumped behind the defendant's table, nervous and intimidated. No, their representative sits in a suit, quietly composed. Perhaps because they know they're protected. There's no threat of actual prison time. Wicked as it may be, this isn't as straightforward as a mugging or a drug deal. It's technically a trial of the neglection of duty. And with these things, responsibility for them is often shared and concealed. And that means the only penalty that Judge Sheridan has in his legal arson is monetary. But he's going to use it at full force. This is a record-breaking fine for record-breaking offending. One has to get the message across. In light of a guilty plea, I have to fine you £20,361,140. The fine is set. £20,000,000. It's an unprecedented amount. A hum of shock moves through the room. And as people start to file out, the press moves over to the defense and the prosecution for interviews and comment. But no one rushes over or even glances at the victim to get their reaction. And that's because they're not there. This whole time, the gallery has been empty. In fact, the victim doesn't even know that the trial is being held. And that's because the victim is us. My name is Tilly Robinson, and you're listening to The Water We Swim In, a seven-part miniseries that explores what system change really means. Each episode investigates a story that helps us understand the way our society is being designed, so that we can see the invisible forces leading us towards the climate crisis. Because in order to know where you're going, you first need to know where you stand and how you got there. Last week, we learned how our economic model doesn't take into account its own outer limits. In this episode, we take a look at the ideology that keeps that model in place. Something so commonly accepted, we don't even know it's there. And in order to understand this, we're talking about an ancient charter, a quiet theft, and why bottled water is only the beginning. Part one, the forgotten charter. Okay, so this happened in 1217. So this is 800 years ago, 400 years before Shakespeare. Uh, and the building it would have happened in is, it was called St Paul's, but it wasn't this particular cathedral. But it was, was it here? Yeah, it was right here. Uh, it was a building that burnt down in the Great Fire of London. And, you know, it would have been smaller than this one, but compared to the rest of medieval London, it would just sort of towered above it. Mm. It was really impressive. I'm talking to Matthew, another writer on the podcast, who had the task of researching a huge historical event that happened on this day, the 6th of November, 1217. So he took me to have a look at where it happened, St Paul's Cathedral. OK, so if we come over here, so at the altar there would have been these three figures. One of them would have been tiny, just kind of drowning in thick velvet robes. And this was King Henry III. He was ten years old at the time. Yeah, yeah. And he was been there with his uncle, who was the Earl of Pembroke, and an Italian cardinal who would have been there representing the Pope. Do you know what it actually looked like? Yeah, it's a very small piece of paper, piece of parchment, and it has the seven articles written in incredibly tiny script in Latin. So it's not like a scroll? No, no, really small. The whole thing, though, would have been read out in full afterwards, and then they would have signed it with their seals. There were two documents being sealed in this ceremony. One was the Magna Carta, the Charter of Liberties. That name might ring a bell. It's viewed as the first statement of human rights and it's seen as the most important legal document in common law history. 
It's been invoked as a symbol of democracy and the inspiration for many national constitutions. But you probably won't have heard of the second charter that was sealed that day. The Charter of the Forest. Which is a shame, because it's really interesting. I mean, you can feel what it's like being in such a big, important building. I mean, it's quite like solid yeah the atmosphere is really already pretty impressive and this was a momentous occasion you know i mean this represents serious change this is the young king coming in and kind of undoing what his father had done henry's father king john had not been a popular king he had done basically what bad kings do and prioritized his own pleasure over the needs of his people for example he wanted more woods to hunt in So he just turfed people out, declaring them royal forests now. Forests that people had occupied for years now saw them branded as poachers and killed or castrated for their crime of trespassing. But King John didn't want those same restrictions applied to his game animals. So ditches were filled in and partitions destroyed so that his deer and boar could roam free and breed easily. And of course, while that might be good for the king's hunting, lots of free roaming boar and deer is not good for crops or people whose livelihoods depend on them. This is actually when Robin Hood was set. That's why his merry men are often eating venison. Simply killing and eating a deer was an act of rebellion. And Robin Hood might have been a fictional character, but Prince John, that sulky lion in Disney's depiction, he was based on someone very real. Taxes! (laughs) Taxes! Beautiful, lovely... Taxes! Aha! Aha! Sire, you have an absolute skill for encouraging contributions from the poor. (laughs) To coin a phrase, my dear counsellor, rob the poor to feed the rich. (laughs) Am I right? (laughs) Under his rule, the people, understandably, started to reach their breaking point. And I mean all the people. And this led to something quite rare, an informal coalition of the classes. Everyone from peasants to noblemen. So a group of barons, because they wielded the most power, led a full-blown revolt, which ultimately ended in King John's death. And what did they use their victory to demand? A charter. A charter to protect the people's right to their land. To roam across it, to use it, to graze their animals, to farm a small hold, to gather wood. It basically said, this is a forest. You can't just call shotgun. It was here long before us, and it doesn't belong to anyone, which means it belongs to everyone. Access to this land is what we all have in common, and the land that the Charter protected was called the Commons. To use this land is too common, and doing so makes you a commoner. That's what being a commoner means. It doesn't mean that you're poor or unimportant. It means you're free. Skip two. Little King Henry, standing amid a lavish ceremony in the largest cathedral in the world, sealing the Charter of the Forest. Subversive, unprecedented, and deemed so important that churches would be required to read it in full four times a year. At the end of the ceremony, uh, they would have read out this statement. All men of this, our realm, shall observe their part. And for this, our gift and grant of these liberties. We do grant that the Charter, in all its articles, forever shall be firmly and inviolably observed. Shall forever be firmly and inviolably observed. Well, the Magna Carta has been lauded and protected, but the Charter of the Forest? Fallen into complete obscurity, barely remembered. We do still have commons today. Natural commons, like the forests or any part of nature that can't be claimed, like shared resources and spaces, the air, water, moors, fisheries, parks. But we also have social commons. Things like elderly care, social services, the NHS. And we have civic commons, which basically means a fair legal system. And we have cultural commons, like museums and libraries and galleries. The list goes on. And these commons have been built collectively over years and years and handed to the next generation as a source of public wealth. So we still have commons, but knowledge of the concept has faded. You know your human rights, no doubt, linked to the Magna Carta. But what about your rights to the commons, linked to the Charter of the Forest? Why do we know less about that? 
Well, let's scoot forward from the 1200s to a time in more recent memory. Because, actually, in the grand scheme of things, it's only just been forgotten. After the Second World War, the political mood was largely one of state-guided social cohesion. We'd just gone through this long period of crisis where the government had needed to call the shots, so it wasn't really every man for themselves, get the state out of my backyard. It was, oh God, if we're going to get through this together, we need rationing, we need centralised strategy like blackouts, and we need careful economic planning. So after the war, that was kind of the mentality. Most people were happy for a welfare state to be developed. Most people were happy to pay higher taxes if it meant the government would provide things like social security, the NHS, education, social housing. Most people. But not everyone. There was a fringe group of thinkers, of economists, that weren't so sure. There was another sentiment, understandably, left over from the war, and that was a real dislike for fascism. And these economists... They worried that state welfare was a step in that direction. They didn't like how much power and control the state had, how much involvement it had in people's lives. State economic planning, a reliance on state welfare, fewer individual freedoms. It sounded like a downhill slope to totalitarianism. So they developed a set of alternative ideas about how things could be run. They developed an ideology. The idea was to limit the government's control. And the way they wanted to do this was to stop the government from interfering with the economy as much as possible, to give people total economic freedom. So instead, they would let the market and the mechanisms that the market uses, like supply and demand, decide the value of things totally independently. So in this ideology, the market was free to sort of sort out the economy without any government control, without them imposing regulations and tariffs and tax rebates, trying to encourage or discourage certain practices or businesses, none of that. It would be left up to the market. And that's what makes it a free market ideology. Think of it like an extreme form of capitalism. This is known as neoliberalism. The main tenets of neoliberalism were set out in a series of books by a man called Friedrich Hayek. Hayek was also involved in the founding of the Mont Pelerin Society, which was a group mostly made up of right-wing economists and scholars, a sort of think tank designed to spread neoliberalism, because they wanted their ideology to hit the mainstream. And in the 1980s, they got their wish. To those waiting with bated breath for that favourite media catchphrase, the U-turn... I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies, not for turning. (laughs) Margaret Thatcher, our Prime Minister from 1979 to 1990. Thatcher had read Hayek and was a big fan of neoliberalism. In fact, after being re-elected as leader of the Conservative Party, it's said that she walked into her first meeting with the Shadow Cabinet and slammed a copy of Hayek's book, The Constitution of Liberty, down on the table, declaring, this is what we believe. And it was. She believed that neoliberalism was the key to kick-starting the country's sluggish economy. Less interference in the market would mean lower taxation, free trade, cheaper goods, which, because all those things are good for businesses, would encourage investment into those businesses, because you want to invest in a business that's going to do well. And then that means more money put into things, and therefore better services, better infrastructure, and better funded institutions. Just a healthier economy and a happier society. So Thatcher was the model student for the Montpellier Society, putting into practice all they had hoped for. And at the same time in the United States, President Reagan was rolling out the same policies, having had similar ideological epiphanies. Soon, neoliberalism would become the cornerstone of Western society. So what about the commons? Where do they fit into this ideology? Well, they posed a bit of a problem. I'm going to set out for you the issue that Thatcher faced. In neoliberalism, the market knows best. That's its whole thing. And it's the market's job to determine the value of things based on what price they can fetch. So in the market, value is assigned by price. But here's the issue. The commons are free. The whole point is that they're owned by all of us. I mean, who would you pay? So they don't have a price. 
and they aren't scarce either, they're plentiful and should last forever. So this means, as far as neoliberalism is concerned, they have no value. They're just sitting around, worth diddly squat, not part of the economy, a total waste. So, you're Margaret Thatcher, this is the logic you ascribe to. What would you do? Well, you surely want to assign value to the commons that represents how great they are. But in neoliberalism, you only care what the market has to say. And in the market, the only value you have is monetary. Ergo, give them a price. That's what you do. But how do you just give something a price? You can't just whack one on arbitrarily. The prime minister randomly assigning prices to things would be serious government interference in the market, which, as we know, is a big no-go for neoliberalism. No, the way you give it a price is to sell it. And this is called privatisation. Mr Speaker, PowerGen will be sold off at the highest price. My right honourable friend has an indicative price other bids will be asked for. Is he against selling it off at the highest price? Or does he allow or does he allow his prejudices against private enterprise to dictate his every sentence? Privatization is where you take something which previously belonged to the public and you sell it to a private company who then owns it. And a notable example of this would be our water supply. Most countries' water supplies are state-owned and state-run because water is a natural commons. But Thatcher wanted to bring our commons into the economy. She claimed that not only would it boost our economy, but it would benefit the customer. Companies would be clamouring to win customers over. Use our water company. We'll make our services better. We'll make our water cleaner. The prices will be lower. And if it's a private company, they'll be turning a profit where the government wouldn't be. And that means investors, which means more money for investment in the infrastructure. You know, we'd be able to replace those old Victorian-era pipes. Better service, better economy. This was Thatcher's promise. So, at the end of the 80s, Britain's water supply was sold to 10 companies, whose job it now was to provide us with water, treat our sewage and protect our supply. And the biggest of these companies was Thames Water. That still is. It's a behemoth of a company. And they're responsible for supplying water to about 15 million people and looking after the health of our rivers. A job laden with the responsibility of public health and environmental protection. Pretty unfortunate, then, that on a Wednesday in March 2017, a representative of theirs was forced to spend a morning standing trial in a small court in Aylesbury. Part two. Marking your own homework. Gone fishing. Real this is a Thames water advert from the 90s. The tideway of the Thames could not support fish. Now, over 100 species have been recorded there. One reason why we export our expertise to 40 countries. It's boasting cleaner water. And they did have something to boast about, as it seems. Privatisation was working, investment was climbing, the water was cleaner, there were excited whispers of dolphins in the Thames. Jump forward to the last couple of years, and Thames Water is using all that investment that Thatcher predicted to build an impressive £4.1 billion super sewer, a tunnel underneath the Thames for extra safe and speedy sewage management. So, it's going well. Except that back in 2013, a man called Doug Kennedy happened to see that there were fish floating on the surface of the River Thames. A weird amount. He looked closer and he saw that the river was jet black with flies covering it. Doug is a photographer and is used to paying close attention to the natural world. He also graduated with an environmental master's in 2002, which meant that he found the matted duckweed covering the river suspicious. It meant that there were nutrients in the water that shouldn't be there. So he called the environmental agency, the EA, to report that something was wrong. And over the next few years, the EA investigated. They responded to multiple call-outs from residents of nearby areas, sometimes confused and sometimes distressed. And in 2017, they had enough evidence to present to the court. Raw sewage had been leaking into our rivers repeatedly across two years. Millions of litres of sewage every day. Marlow, a small village near Ellsbury, alone saw 1.4 billion litres of excrement flow into their river. And for this catastrophic oversight and procedure, Thames Water were fined a historic £20 million bill. 
so maybe if we start, um, yeah, that's fine. Um, if you're happy to start with just like a little introduction soundbite, so your name and what you do. Yeah, sure. So I'm Jill Plummer and I cover infrastructure at the FT, which has a fairly broad definition, so it covers some social infrastructure such as care homes, as well as uh, private hospitals and also the big infrastructure projects, so HS2 and water companies. Mm. I'm sitting with Jill Plummer in her house in London. She's a journalist for the Financial Times and a veteran at 20 years in the role. Her sitting room, a modern room with tall ceilings, is strewn with the remnants of her daughter's birthday party from the night before. As soon as I walk in, she offers me coffee and an array of cereal bars. I get the feeling they might be a staple lunch for a busy journalist. She apologises for the mess and hauls a laptop onto her lap so she can scroll through the pages and pages of research she has, picking out the relevant findings for me. I've come to speak with her because... Despite all of this tight neoliberal logic, despite all the investment and the need to compete for customers and to provide a better service, it seems like maybe Thames Water have started doing a terrible job. And I want to know why. So before meeting Jill, I had a look into the company's structure to see how it worked. And I really struggled to make sense of it. Just sort of out of interest, how do you go about finding out a company structure that's so... Do you have to sort of follow... Yeah, so Companies House will have some records. uh, But yeah, no, it's tangled and tricky. And that's what makes it so hard to unravel these big companies. Well, so Thames was floated on the stock exchange in 1989. Then it was acquired by a German utility group called RWE. And then since December 2006, it was owned by a consortium of... The list seems to go on forever. But to just simplify it, the way a private company is structured is that it's owned by whoever owns the shares. So you get shares in exchange for investment, putting money in, the investment that Thatcher was so excited about. And then when that company, say Thames Water, makes money, some of it goes to its shareholders in a process called paying dividends. The more shares you own, the more you're paid in dividends, but also the more say you have in what the company does, because it's using your money after all. And in 2017, it seems that an Australian investment company called Macquarie owned the biggest stake in Thames Water, and so therefore exerted the most control over it. That's easy enough. But then it gets confusing. And then there's all these different intermediary companies. How, how many? At the time, in 2017, there were seven Wow. Uh, including one in the Caymans. But yeah. now I haven't looked most recently. But yeah, they're always multi-layered. Mm. And often it's very hard to find out what these companies do or where the money flows, partly because they're offshore. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, how, well, why would you need seven intermediaries? That seems like, <laughs> that seems like Yeah, why would you do that? And, and why are they doing this? I don't know. If, as a customer of Thames Water, you want to talk to someone who actually owns the company, you have to follow the trail through seven other companies. If you ask me, that's a bit of a weird and opaque structure for a company with a duty to protect public health and the environment. Especially because it means it's almost impossible to assign blame when something goes terribly wrong and serious mistakes are made. Were there any kind of notable figures? Was there anybody who sort of shouldered responsibility for these these leakages? It seems not. It seems not. I mean, the Macquarie, you know, was briefly shamed, I think, for its ownership of Thames, but clearly there's no real punishment because it's recently taken over Southern Water. But, yeah, no, clearly no punishment whatsoever. That's the thing with a private company like Thames Water. You can't criminally prosecute anyone for doing a terrible job. The structure's private, so you technically don't know who to blame, and the most you can do is fine them. But maybe sending them to prison for making a mistake feels a little harsh anyway, even if it is a mistake that turns our rivers into a toxic sludge. Even if it's a mistake that they seem to make over and over again. They had received previous fines, but much smaller. Mm. And I I think, you know, one of the interesting parts to the story is the role of the regulators. 
I mean, giving water companies the right to self-monitor their own pollution just seems crazy. Yeah, you know, it's marking your own homework, isn't it? Thames Water monitoring their own pollution. This grabbed Jill's attention, so she tracked down Doug Kennedy, the guy who noticed the floating fish in 2013. And then what she figures out changes everything. I mean, it was a journalist's dream, really, that I managed to track him down and went and visited him in a really lovely part of the country. And he had just come across dead fish in the river and started monitoring it. And then from there, I sort of got interested in Thames water. So I sort of started covering it incrementally. And then there was the run-up to the court case, Mm. and it just seemed hugely interesting because... And ultimately, it did find that, you know, this company had deliberately dumped sewage into the Thames and tried to mislead people about it. For legal reasons, drawing a conclusion here is a delicate dance. So I'm going to let you draw your own. Jill discovered that they were monitoring their own pollution, or marking their own homework, as she put it, and Judge Sheridan issued such a huge fine because he ruled that the leaks were entirely foreseeable and preventable. So what do you think? Was it purely incompetence? Or was it strategy? Had Thames Water been choosing to leak sewage, millions of litres of it, into our rivers? If you're unsure, listen to what Jill figured out next. It's quite complicated and it's only the sort of thing an infrastructure correspondent would uncover. But it's worth it because once you understand, it makes everything clearer. So bear with me. When she was looking into the company structure of Thames Water, Jill found that due to some complicated regulatory system... Thames Water has a limit on what they can charge customers depending on what they themselves spend on. Boring run-of-the-mill operating expenditures like stopping leaks or installing water meters, they can't raise their prices for that because it's just them doing their job. But a big, shiny capital expenditure like building that big, fat super sewer I mentioned, even if, as Jill discovered, it's been advised against because it's overly expensive and complex, well... Building something like that means that they can hike customer bills right up, which is absolutely great for your shareholders, although it may be less good for the people who are paying for their water. The only problem is that any juicy profit that Thames Water makes from that price hike is diminished by the cost of actually having to build the super sewer, the thing that justifies the hike in the first place, which is annoying, obviously. So for these, Thames Water could say that these expenditures are too expensive for them to pay by themselves and that they need to borrow taxpayer money from the government. And then they could write that off as debt that they never intend to pay back. Essentially, they've taken on £51 billion of debt since being privatised and paid out £56 billion in dividends. And all that, most of that came from your water bills. So essentially what it shows is that they could have funded all their capital expenditure, which is, you know, improvements to sewage pipes and sewage plants, without taking on any debt. I mean, why bother with an expensive operating expenditure when you can just take a loan out that you never intend to repay and use that to fund an unnecessary project for which you can overcharge customers which you don't even need to deliver adequately. Here's the thing. What it looks like is that Thames Water is doing a terrible job because it doesn't benefit their profit margin to do a good one. If your goal is to make as much money as possible, then you might start to look at the operating costs of doing your job properly, like stopping raw sewage from leaking into the rivers, and then have a little look at the fines for failing to do that and think, well, actually, we'd rather take the fines. That's an economic calculation that Thames Water was designed to make. When they pollute the Thames with sewage, that's not because something's gone wrong. They're operating exactly as they're supposed to. As a private company, its priority isn't preserving the health of London's waterways. Its priority is making money. And if the quality of your service as Thames Water drops as a result of this, well, that's the thing. It's not like the customers can run to another water company They're actually a captive market. They live where they live and there's only one choice for them. You're it, so you can do what you like. I mean, at the time, 
the line I was sold was that, yeah, Tim's Water is the bad guy of the industry, you know, and all the water companies were keen to join in criticising Tim as, as if Tim's was the only one. But we know they're not the only one because if you look at Southern, for example, then you'll also, you know, they've recently received an even bigger fine for doing exactly the same thing. And again, the judge has found that it seems deliberate, that it's not just that they accidentally tipped extra sewage into the river, but they actually, in this case, they actually carted sewage away in trucks from the sewage plant to avoid the Environment Agency inspectors finding it. I mean, it, it seems preposterous, mm. but, but it's the reality. If it's a bad apple, then perhaps it's because the whole damn tree is rotten. The issue here is the privatisation of our water. You'd have to pay for your water supply if it was state-owned. You'd pay for them to deliver it, clean it, sort the sewage, same stuff. But the difference is that it would be transparent and they wouldn't be trying to make a profit in the same way. Jill pointed out that the bottom line here is that there's a conflict between our interests and theirs. And that's a bad setup. And the companies themselves made this clear as day when in 2012 they petitioned the European Court of Justice to be able to keep any leakage information concealed from the public. We're a private company, they argued. What business is it of theirs? Part three. A quiet theft. They're criminals. They're criminals. And you'll see so the latest uh, data on not just Thames Water, but um, the water system altogether. They've all been convicted of pouring untreated sewage, and yet they continue to do it because the fines they've got are a tiny fraction of their profits so that they can do it with impunity. This is Guy Standing, economist, professor, author. He is, as you can tell, quite passionate about the state of things. That's what I like about him. I first heard him on another podcast where he was talking about inequality and how important it was for everyone to have a bare minimum of freedom and respect. And he started crying. Crying is one way his passion expresses itself. Here, it's more that he's just very pissed off. And one company has been deliberately manipulating information while polluting the rivers and the seashores for seven years. They've confessed to doing it. Somebody should be in prison for that sort of thing. He points out that none of Thatcher's promises were realised. Our bills are higher, so much so the government actually had to step in and pay for a portion of some people's because they were deemed unacceptably high. And those old Victorian pipes? Never updated. And, of course, our rivers are filthy. And they get away with it. They've been convicted... Somehow the state doesn't seem to regard pouring billions of tonnes of untreated sewage, endangering lives, as a criminal activity. I think it should be a criminal activity because they're doing it deliberately and it's killed off vast numbers of birds and fish and affected the health of children. It's most of our rivers, you can't swim in them without endangering your health. He's right. If you knew what was in our rivers, and I mean all of our rivers... You wouldn't want to go anywhere near them. England's rivers are filled with a chemical cocktail of sewage, agricultural waste and plastic, according to a cross-party group of MPs. And it's putting both public health and nature at risk. A new report released today finds that not a single river in England is free from pollution. Not a single river in the United Kingdom is technically safe to swim in. Only 14% of them reach an acceptable ecological standard. It sounds dramatic, but there's literally no other way to say it. The commons have been sold and then degraded for the sake of profit. And it's not just our water supply. Guy's written a book. It's called Plunder of the Commons. And in it, he details how huge swathes of our commons have been sold by the government to private entities without any democratic process, without compensation and without our permission. It's our oil, our gas, our land, our forests, our agricultural land, our skyline, our minerals, our seabeds, our fish. Guy shows how when private companies try and make short-term profits, which is what they're designed to do, out of our commons that should last forever, the commons are inevitably degraded and exploited. Or, as he puts it, plundered. Close your eyes. Turn your face to the wind. 
Feel it sweep across your skin. Suddenly, you know you're alive. This is an advert. In it, a pretty woman closes her eyes in relief and breathes in with the wind lifting her curls. There are shots of cool, clean mountainscapes interspersed with quick flashes of polluted cityscapes, a flash of an underground train. And then back to sunlit filtered through leaves, a hand in the soil, a baby's face, more mountain shots. Oxygen, the source of every created thing. Body, mind, and soul. So within the noisy, beating machine of your body, you breathe patiently. It's a beautiful sound. It's your life. At Vitality Air, we provide people with the key element of life. Clean air and oxygen. Vitality Air. Enhancing vitality, one breath at a time. It's a beautiful advert. It gives a feeling of peace and calm. And what's it for? Well, it's the market's solution to our problem. I've been waiting to talk to these two guys all day. We got Moses and Troy, guys. Thanks for coming in from Vitality Air. Thanks this for is, having us. Well, this is a great thing. Now, let's talk about it. I mean, you guys get air, you bag it, and you sell it. Where did you guys get this idea? I guess, Troy, we'll start with you. Uh, it was a crazy idea. Um, <laughs> we know a lot of people that have traveled and people that have been over to Asia and, and India and Dubai and just talk about how poor the air quality is. And we always say that we have the, some of the best air in the world. Sure. And uh, we always thought it would be neat to try and capture it and, and get it to them find a way to, to send it back to them. Okay, so, so who's buying these products? Are we, are we looking at, you know, <laughs> athletes? Are we looking at younger people? Are we looking at people with problems breathing or people climbing mountains? I mean, Troy, who, who's buying these? Who's your target market here? Well, the air has mainly been going overseas. Um, like how China, far overseas? China, China. Dubai, India. Um, we had some stuff going to Bangkok. What they're selling is bottled air. Not like medical-grade oxygen, just air. And is it for people who have trouble breathing? Younger people? Partiers? For athletes? No, Troy makes it very clear. Their market is for people who live in places where the air pollution is dangerously high, where you don't have access to clean air. So why not sell some to them? My name is Tanya, and um, I'm a full-time mom, and I gave birth in 2013. Uh, I, I read the news first. I saw there's... Uh, two young men from Canada, they, they invented this uh, bottled air. I trust this product. It's very easy. It's just like you open the, open the cap here and you pull up this, this cover and then put it here. Then you press inhale. That's it, very simple. Mm, so you can get the fresh air from Rocky Mountain in Banff, Canada. My daughter is coughing. I can feel I can feel that in the past um, one or two months, it's getting serious. She said uh, I'm not comfortable to going outside, so I decided to try everything we can do to protect our family. If we close down more factories, coal mining companies, it will really solve the problem. However, it will affect the economy of the whole society. We are waiting for the wise people to give us the better solutions as well. Tanya lives in China, the frontier of industry, where lots of cities suffer from a toxic smog, which is causing a health crisis. Only eight cities meet air standards. And in Beijing, the pollution level is 36 times the acceptable level. But according to the market, it's an acceptable side effect of the economy growing. Guy refers to air pollution as the ultimate commodification of the natural commons. Because if industry and private companies are destroying something owned by all of us that we all have a right to, should they not pay a tax to be discouraged and us compensated? Instead, the market means that innovation happens. Alternatives crop up, like Vitality Air, $32 for a bottle. A bottle has a minimum of 160 breaths, so just to save you from the maths, that's 20 cents a breath. On their website, it reads, Remember the day when people laughed off bottled water? It comes out of a tap. Why would I want a bottle? 
the truth is that we've begun to appreciate the clean, pure and refreshing taste of quality water. Air is going in the same direction. This reads more like a threat. The logical endpoint of neoliberalism and privatisation. You don't even have a right to the air you breathe. Not unless you pay. The thing is, it's not just about air or water or one specific thing, environmental or otherwise. It's very, very important to see the commons as, as a set of things that we inherit. They belong to nobody in particular, but they belong to all of us. And this extends to the sea, it extends to ideas, it extends to all our institutions, our cultural institutions. And, and I, I just hope you don't get drawn into just saying about nature, because that, that low-hanging fruit of the commons, it's important, of course it's vitally important, but it must be seen as a totality. The audio isn't great here, but just in case you didn't catch that, he said, I hope you don't get drawn into just saying it's nature. That's low-hanging fruit stuff. Like I said, Guy cares about people. That's why the commons are so important to him. Because to think that the commons are just about preserving nature, that's missing the point entirely. The commons are about equality. And they always were. The Charter of the Forest was never about natural conservation for the sake of nature itself. It was about the commoners. Having access to nature was just a fundamental part of their freedom and security. Being able to hunt and build and farm and forage, the commons were a shared wealth. And that's exactly what they are now. Maybe less foraging, but a thriving community is a source of wealth for those who inhabit it. Provides freedom and security just the same. A functioning healthcare system is a source of national wealth. Access to justice is wealth. Clean water is wealth. Libraries and access to books and information is wealth. Public wealth that's built collectively and then handed down from generation to generation. But when you put a price on the commons, they stop being public wealth and they become private wealth, a commodity to buy and sell. This is actually something that was identified all the way back in the 17th century by the Earl of Lauderdale. The other noted that there was an inverse correlation between public and private wealth. So when one goes up, the other one goes down. So if we increase private wealth, it's going to happen at the expense of public wealth. And this is called the Lauderdale Paradox. Despite recognising and naming this paradox, the Earl decided that it wasn't anything to worry about. Widespread privatisation, he said, wouldn't be allowed by society. Because... To take something free and infinitely abundant for everyone, like sustainable commons, and make it scarce and profitable for a minority of people, that would be incredibly unpopular. People wouldn't stand for it. Selling the commons to the wealthiest people just so they can charge the poorest people to use what used to belong to them? Surely, surely, that would cause outrage. Or as the L put it, the common sense of mankind would revolt if we try to create a scarcity of any commodity that is generally useful to man. And he was right, of course. People did revolt, literally, 800 years ago. And it resulted in the Charter of the Forest, a document enshrining our rights to the commons. But no one's revolting now. Even though Guy's research shows that private wealth has doubled since the 1970s and net public wealth has fallen below 0%. Which basically means private entities have become incredibly rich. And our governments are deep in debt. And our governments being deep in debt means austere measures for us. Restrict and reduce the social commons. The British Prime Minister has used a speech to the Conservative faithful to prepare the country for savage spending cuts. But I have to tell you, there is no other responsible way. In the UK, protests have begun over the government's most savage spending cuts in decades. The measures announced today do disproportionately hit uh, lower-income groups. Warnings of big spending cuts to public services. The National Health Service is in crisis and winter is coming. What the Earl of Lauderdale didn't count on was that an ideology would come along that rendered his paradox completely immaterial. Poof. Gone. No longer an issue. And how's it done this? I believe you won't keep political freedom unless you also have economic freedom, which means that you must have a large part of free enterprise in your whole economy. Well, 
neoliberalism doesn't recognise the existence of public wealth, remember? So, in their view, nothing's lost when private wealth is gained. After all, Margaret Thatcher's famous quote was, there's no such thing as society. So, to her, converting social commons into private profit is purely a win. To a neoliberal, there is no reason to revolt, because there's no loss to be acknowledged. And we've all unwittingly become neoliberals. Neoliberal logic has become second nature. Its principles are now so deeply embedded that they're just seen as common sense. It's an economic ideology so dominant in the West that we forget it has a name. The water we swim in, economists call it. Because we've lived in it so long, it's become invisible to us. So, forget a revolt. In the face of our commons being sold off and degraded, we're barely aware of what's happening. Most people I interview on Zoom are squirrelled away in offices or studies, usually surrounded by shelves of books. Not Guy Standing. Guy is talking to me from a 14th century peasant's mill in Italy, with a nine-metre waterfall outside of crystal clear water. In a way, the location's appropriate. The mill must have been built only about 100 years after the Charter of the Forest was sealed. And when it comes to solving our neoliberal problem, Guy believes that we should be looking backwards to what we've lost and finding ways to make it new. He wants a document that asserts our rights to the commons, that says, hey, this is a forest, or a river, or a collectively owned health service. You can't just call shotgun. The commons belong to no one, so they belong to everyone. And that public wealth should be protected. And, conveniently enough, he's written one. It's a charter. This one's called the Charter of the Commons. It's quite a large, complex document, and if you're interested in all the moving parts, I encourage you to go and have a read of it. But I'll just break it down for you, because it's a hell of a good starting point for tackling this issue. It establishes, first of all, that the commons are owned by everyone and should be protected for the benefit of all, including future generations, which means not using them up or selling them off. And if a company wanted to profit from them in a way that depletes them, say, fracking our gas, they would have to pay a tax on those profits. Same deal for pollution things like carbon emittance. And this should make for a more ecologically sustainable society, one where we won't be hurtling towards irreversible climate change, because companies won't want to tear through resources and pollute in the same way if it damages their profit margin. And as for a more socially equitable society, we use the money from the taxes to put into a commons fund. And that fund is used to manage the commons, but also to be redistributed to every single person in the country as a source of modest supplementary income. A payment each month. Just like shareholders get paid dividends for owning part of a company, we get paid dividends for owning part of the commons. And it's not some wild communist idea. It's something other countries have done. At one point, we owned a lot of oil in the North Sea, and that, surprise, surprise, sold most of it off to private companies. Norway didn't. They also have a lot of North Sea oil, but it's owned by the people. And now they have the biggest capital fund in the world, guaranteeing the wealth of every Norwegian citizen. So maybe it's not such a crazy idea that we could create an income from the commons. It's still a way of gaining subsistence, like hunting deer and foraging, but modernised. We should think of the public wealth, the commons that we inherit from our ancestors as belonging to everybody. And the idea would be that the basic income is a matter of common justice. It's a dividend on the collective public wealth we inherit. It should be paid equally to all because we don't know whose ancestors, yours, mine, or everybody else's, contributed more or less to our collective public wealth. And for me, this is a win-win-win situation because it reduces inequality, it increases security, and it helps combat global warming, pollution, threat of extinction. Just by existing, the commons show us how inequality and climate change are inherently interlinked, both caused by a system not working as it should, not valuing what it should. And so if we change that system, even a little, both inequality and climate change can be reversed together. Providing a commons fund would economically incentivize the protection of society's fundamentals, the things that ensure our security and freedom. I mean, the funny thing is that neoliberalism is supposed to be about freedom, 
That's its MO, its defining characteristic. Freedom for the individual, for innovation, a free market. But when you look closely, you may start to wonder, freedom for whom? Freedom for companies to profit from exploitation? Freedom from environmental regulations? Freedom from trade unions and collective bargaining means? Freedom to poison rivers and accelerate climate change? Freedom for the super rich? Or for everyone else? As Guy puts it, freedom for the pike or the minnow. Neoliberalism's thrived because it offers potential freedom. The entirely hypothetical freedom to become millionaires. But perhaps if we concentrate on our actual freedoms, on restoring what's actually ours, we'll feel richer than we expected. You've been listening to The Water We Swim In. It's worth noting that since this episode was first written, Southern Water have managed to outdo Thames Water and landed themselves an impressive £90 million fine. The spills and pollution have continued, along with the dividends payouts. But what's new is that people have started noticing. In the last few weeks, the pollution of our water and the privatisation of our water systems has hit the public discourse. And these companies are being scrutinised in a way that they never have been before. And it looks like if we use this moment to mobilise and apply pressure, things might change. And as I speak, Thames Water are reportedly drawing up contingency plans for their collapse. Turns out that perhaps loading up all of that debt whilst also paying out millions to shareholders potentially wasn't such a sustainable plan. If you want to read more about it or any of the topics discussed today, like nationalising our water, or if you want to read Guy's Charter, head on over to our website, waterweswimin.co.uk. Next week, we're looking at what all of this private wealth means for our democratic rights. And why, just because a man is wearing a leather pig mask, doesn't mean he's wrong about everything. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. Producing this episode was me, Tilly Robinson. Co-writing was Matthew Robinson. Mixing by Naked Productions and original music by Drew McFarlane.